Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Cosmic Coffee Shop. Oh, we're here once again, uh, virtual once again, as we're home for the holidays. Uh, I'm Georgia, and... I am Dakota. And we're here with, uh, you know, I have, you know, water instead of coffee, because it's once again not the morning. I have a a freshly made, it's not even freshly made, but it is in a Yeti cup, so it's still hot. Uh, But cup of coffee, uh, cup of joe at 8.28 p.m., um, I love that. Yeah, right? That's good stuff. I just got a Keurig uh, <laughs> today, and it is my new favorite thing. I am, That's amazing. I'm obsessed. My um, mom doesn't like the look of our, like, $6 uh, coffee maker, so she bought me one of those pour-over coffee makers like I have at home uh-huh. to have when I'm visiting her. Um, and they're traditionally called, like, the Chemexes, um, and she's learned how to pronounce it in, like, 18 different ways, including uh, Chemex, uh Kinex? <laughs> like Kleenex? Like tons of different things. Yeah. It, it's my favorite. I mean, it is a weird word to like pronounce, but, uh, but still. I, I've, I've really enjoyed hearing her version. <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh my gosh. Uh, so Cody, what did, what did you learn this week? So I learned that one of my favorite Disney movies of all time is an absolute lie. Yeah. Um, the Lion King. Because did you know that all cats, like, by nature, are nocturnal? Yeah. Half that movie happens during the day. And I learned that all (laughs) cats are nocturnal. And it really, it really messed me up. I got pretty mad about it. Everything the light touches is yours. I I don't want that. Really? No. They wouldn't have gotten up that early. They would, uh, it's, it's fine, you know? Um, Disney just kind of broke my heart there, but it's okay. Oh my gosh. But it was interesting to learn because like, I'm sure a lot of people already know that, but my sister was telling me about it this week. And I I only know that because my sister has a cat and the few times I've gone to stay with her, Mm -hmm. that cat will uh, wake you up in the middle of the night by trying to eat your feet. And it's pretty upsetting. (laughs) That's fantastic. What a way to get someone up. That's a great alarm clock, honestly. Yeah. Uh, Someone should patent that, you know? (laughs) Maybe that's why cats are so grouchy is they just want to be asleep and you're in their way. That's, you know what? I think that's what it is. Like, that's why cats wake you up in the middle of the night because you sit there and wake them up in the middle of the day to be like, hey, hello. Yeah. It's just like, do you want to hug? Do you want to play? And they're just like, I just, I, oh God, I want to sleep, please. I was losing my mind this week over a video that was like, uh, I'm busy gaslighting my cat. And then it's <laughs> being like, you love this. You love these cuddles. And they're like holding the cat. Oh, that's incredible. The cat's yeah. just looking out over at him, like, all pissed, just like, come on, man. Oh, yeah. No. They just do not love those cuddles. No, they don't. And that's what I love about cats. You know, they, they're so low maintenance. It's great. I, I had two cats that were big cuddlers. I had one named Gus, um, who my dad called Fathead Gus, um, for obvious Ooh, reasons, because yeah. he had a, a fat head. Fair enough. Um, which was very funny. <laughs> and he, if you went up to him and said, and said, kitty kiss, he would like butt his forehead against your forehead. And it was very sweet. That's, I, he was, he was lovely. That's fantastic. Um, and then we had an old cat that my neighbors left behind named Miss Kitty. Um, we were very creative at naming yeah, cats. Yeah, really. We <laughs> um, and she was super sweet. Um, and now we have a cat named Freddy who, it's a stretch to say that he's ours. Really? He lives in the vicinity of my home. And he comes into our garage for food, mm-hmm. but you know he's kind of not really anybody's. He just kind of exists yeah. and shares space with us. Oh, that's really interesting. I so over at the yellow house, there is a cat huh. like that. It's like the neighborhood cat that goes all. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. His name is Ricky, and he is Ricky. the best cat 
ever. Like if you ever have the opportunity to see him, oh my god, he's just oh, so yeah. playful. He's not. He's not a cuddly cat. He like mm-hmm. will just walk into the house. Like they would let him in the window sometimes because like yeah. everyone just lets Ricky in. Um, I love that. That's we, we, I everywhere I live always has like a black cat that just hangs uh-huh. out. And right now it's it's Freddie, the one I was just telling you about. Right. And then right. Ricky at, at the yellow house, mm-hmm. and then the house I live at right now, my neighbor oh, has yes. a cat named Starsky. Starsky that just shows up. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Starsky's like, hey, I'm just going to come into your house like I live there. And we're like, you don't live here. And he's like, I, I don't really care. <laughs> it's amazing. It's so funny to see your roommates go like, but I want, let's just keep him. Let's just keep let's him, just though. Keep, I'm like, he has an owner. You have to send Starsky. He's sitting with a collar on. Just like. Yeah, yeah. We, we put a bed out for him in case it gets cold. But he, like, he is a very cuddly cat. Um, wow. And so I'm, I'm a big fan. But yeah. I, I think it's funny that everywhere I've lived has had like a black cat that just hangs out. That's kind of awesome, actually. I hope that trend continues in our lives because that's kind of sick. I've always said that like you don't you don't get a good pet by going out and picking a pet. Mm-hmm. Um, they just kind of show up at your house and they live there. Yeah. Um, and you can either keep them or not. Those are the options. That's how you know like they like you, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's like when I met my dog, I had no intention of keeping that dog. He was a one pound rescue chihuahua. Like I did not want him. Yeah. But the lady who was fostering him was like, I can't take him home for Easter. Will you watch this dog? And I was like, yeah, sure. And when I got him, he curled up like on my shoulder. And she was like, yeah, he's not really that cuddly. And he's like asleep in like the crook of my neck and i was like i'm gonna keep this dog Uh i guess (laughs) and now we have charlie our boy Now we have charlie like he is crazy he's insane like full crackhead energy he's full of love and oh yeah cocaine (laughs) probably just a little mix of both you know you know everybody's got to have that healthy dose (laughs) don't do drugs so uh georgia what uh what did you learn this week i have learned some very interesting uh astrological information this week and i am not a big um, astronomy buff. Mm-hmm. So if I get any of this information wrong, feel free to message us and correct me. But this is what I've learned from the little p- bits and pieces that I've gathered. So basically, on Monday, the day this is being released, on the 21st, yeah. is our winter solstice. Right. Um, it's the shortest start of say the winter. Mm-hmm. And on that day, Jupiter and Saturn will be aligning in the constellation of Aquarius. Oh. Or the- oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're aligning and you'll be able to see both of them from Earth. Mm -hmm. And that is important because it lines up with the time where we will be moving into the age of Aquarius. We've been in the age of Pisces and now we're moving into the age of Aquarius. Right. I've I've heard Um, people talking about this and it's exciting. And it's cool because like most people will not get to be in two astrological ages in their life. Mm -hmm. So the fact that um, everybody who's alive on the Earth right now gets to do that, that the people (laughs) for the next, you know, two... uh, Generations? Millennia. Millennia. That makes more sense. Uh, it's it's like 2,000 years. Or, wow. Or, or oh, so. my God. 2,000 years? Yeah. Let's like, hope the, it's the, a the good age. Let's hope it's, like, good. What What's supposed to happen in it? So what's supposed to happen in it is basically, like, this is supposed to be a time where caring for others becomes a lot more important and social change and, um, like, gr- generosity become mm-hmm. more common, which is fascinating because the age before us um, was considered to be like an age of monotheism and it had a lot of ties to uh, money and wealth and right. prosperity for a few. And so we're moving into an age where those things will not be as desired, uh, which is really fascinating because my hope for it is that we are moving into an age where money becomes less of the prerogative and care becomes a higher need. Right. Um, 
So I'm hoping people might start, like, I, I've never put a lot of stock into astrology. Uh-huh. Or is it astrology it's, or astronomy? No, it's astrology if it's, like, the astrology. astral charts and stuff, yeah. Um, I, I never put a lot of, you know, stock into it. Mm-hmm. And then somebody did my star chart, and I was like, oh, no, that's Too really accurate. accurate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of crazy. I, You know what, though? I really do think that, like, this next age that we're moving into can be that. Because, like, yeah. I noticed that in a lot of people in our generation, that's what they're talking about. You yeah. know, it's, yeah. it's caring about other people. It's being empathetic. It's having like mm-hmm. a universal consciousness rather than a selfish one or like, yeah. like an ego or something, you know? Totally. I, I'm really interested to like do some more research into it. Yeah. And also just like kind of see how things develop. But if, if you are into uh, astrology or, um, you know, meditation or anything, I've heard a lot of people saying that if you have something that you're, really uh hoping for or dreaming for that uh monday would be a really good time to put a lot of manifestation or prayer into it yeah. if you want to if you're thinking about starting a business like this is a good time to put a lot of your energy into that if you are you know dealing with something hard in your life this is a good time to put a lot of prayer and energy into that mm-hmm. um so kind of whatever like connects you to the universe monday might be a good time to really delve into that so that's what i learned makes me feel a little bit more uh what's the word like hippie than i usually do (laughs) no that's okay we're all about hippies here like clearly (laughs) oh absolutely Um, (laughs) yeah that's super exciting i really can't wait for it um but yeah Yeah. that's awesome well do you think we should further yeah let's get into it our lovely guest we have a great guest for you yep today she's one of our professors um and we're really excited to get to share this wonderful interview with you yeah it's super exciting so we'll see you in there bye We're uh, back with our lovely friend, Kristen Hedberg. Hello. How are you today? I'm great. I'm having coffee, which I don't usually have. Perfect. In honor of the cosmic coffee shop, I felt (laughs) like tea was not quite the right vibe. Because you're normally a tea person, no? Mm -hmm. I'm doing some Guatemalan something. Oh my Whoa. gosh, that looks very fancy. That's like, that's fancier than Starbucks, for fancier sure. Than Starbucks. I already downed my coffee for the day, but that's okay. You know, I've got my water here because hydration is key. Hydration station. Hydrate or dihydrate, as they I say. Just, like, spit water everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hydrate or dihydrate. Um, yeah, well, Kristen, yeah. we're super glad to have you. Um, for everyone who does not have the pleasure of knowing Kristen Hedberg, she is our lovely voice teacher who we have been dearly blessed with as musical theater students. Absolutely. Like... I wouldn't have been able to make it through the past couple of years without lessons with Kristen Hedberg, if I'm being completely honest. Kristen is our vocal coach and our stand-in therapist and dear friend. <laughs> yeah, like life coach, honestly. Yeah, life coach, Kristen Hedberg. <laughs> oh, um, man. Yeah, but without further ado, I guess we'll just kind of hop into it, if that's okay with you. Yeah, it's good. Instead of uh, us telling, you know, the audience who you are, why don't uh, we get that from you? Who are you? That's a really good one. So I'm going to say... At my core, I am a skipping, laughing, whimsical, mud pie making, sunflower worshiping, old soul with a childlike energy who prefers the company of animals. And uh, currently, as a female human, I would say that I collect the light of the world and that I share it through art song my imagination and then 
through gentle relationships, preferably, and an ongoing communion with nature. I'm a traveler, and I follow a path of druidry that is how I let my life play out. That's the single-handed best answer Absolutely. ever. Oh, yeah. So, like... <laughs> that, was, that was wonderful. Every time we have someone on the show, they're like, oh, oh, that's a tough question. Who am I? Well, I don't know. And I'm just like... And Kristen's like, ah, yes. Oh, here's mm. the list. We got it. That's amazing. I love that. Um, how, how did that love for nature, like, first manifest in your life? It's probably the oldest connection I have to, to living. I, my mom gave me my baby book. Did you have a baby book where they write things about you when you're a baby? They did it for my sister, and then I was the second child, so that just never <laughs> yeah. happened. I was, I was probably in my mid-30s when my mom actually gave this to me, and I was like, oh, wow. There's so many clues in it. This baby book kind of follows me, I think, until about age three. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's so and many there's clues, so many in, clues there. in there. It's like, it's I was like, like oh, oh, okay. And so I realized how much I love to sing, how much I love dogs, how much I love skipping in mud puddles and playing outside in the grass. Uh, and that is a very old thing. And it, it sort of predates, I think, environmental upbringing to a certain extent. So there's something about my past 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 that's linked there. But I would say I grew up a child of the outdoors um, we didn't have internet. We didn't have cable TV. There certainly were no cell phones. So life was spent outside. Mm -hmm. We had vegetable gardens and we had sunflower gardens and the sunflowers grew so tall when it rained, you could sit under them like umbrellas and not even need to go inside if you're a kid. Yeah. Um, I was always swimming. I was always climbing trees digging in mud, rolling in the grass. It was just, that was my life. And my mom is uh, from a family of farmers. So we spent a lot of time on my grandparents' farm, out in the pasture, around cows, pigs, um, lakes, fishing. And so I, I have to say that, that it's almost like being indoors was a second dwelling for me as a child, and I have less memories indoors than I do outdoors. So I, I, I think that that was just a simple part of life and that that was really the juice of it. And every time I felt distracted or disappointed or jaded or burnt out in life, it's always been returning to that. That's been, been the healing balm. So it's sort of like what's always there with you, what's always right in front of you has been the thing all along in a way. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite memory from your childhood? My favorite memory? Hmm. I don't know if I can bundle it up into one moment. Mm -hmm. I, I think being close to the holidays right now, I can definitely bring up the celebration aspect of family that I I'm lucky to have a family that took all of those holidays very seriously and made them very special for me. So if I think about my birthdays, all the way until I was probably a tween, my mom made me these elaborate birthday cakes. And they they were just like 
again, you didn't go to the bakery back then and hire some baker to make some fancy cake. And she would go and she would buy all of these party supplies and these different colors uh, of things. And, and I remember one, I think when I was five, I had this multi-tiered cake full of pink elephants. Whoa. And one year it was strawberry shortcake. And I had to share my birthday party with this boy that I didn't really know because we just moved to a new town. And so to appease the situation, my half of the cake was strawberry shortcake and his half was the purple pie man. And so it was like, cool, because he had the boy half, but I still loved the purple pie man because it was part of strawberry shortcake. I've never heard of the purple pie man. (laughs) What's the purple pie man? Purple pie man is the like... The nemesis, the arch enemy of the strawberry shortcake. Oh, oh my god, that's so funny! I'm very behind on strawberry shortcake lore. That's yeah, <laughs> you know, need to like, that up. Uh, in the Smurfs, Gargamel is sort of the. Oh yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. He's sort of this goofy, not good at it. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was the purple pie man. Anyway, that's um, so good. Um, and then Christmas, um, we didn't always spend Christmas in the same place. We would go around different grandparents' house, and sometimes we would rush back, according to talking to my dad in recent years, to home just in time for Christmas morning. And I I can think back about it now, and I can see my parents all, all night putting everything together and the amount of care. Uh, and then as I got older, just the the putting of things in stockings became this big thing. It didn't really matter what they were, uh, how cool they were. It was the fact that there was this mystery. It was very theatrical. And so I think celebrating things was done well in my family, and I still have this desire to do that well today. My husband comes from a very different background where there wasn't a lot of celebrating, and he's not from a large family. So I find myself in our marriage trying to be the mom and the dad and the wife and the sibling and create this huge amount of magic for him every holiday season. Um, Other things that come to mind are memories of... I would get off the bus at the high school every day because my mom was a high school teacher. So we didn't go home. We would go to the high school and we would do our homework. And then mom would usually be directing a play, sometimes a musical. And I would sit in the theater and watch her direct. And I, I loved those, those days, just sitting there observing that. And I think that certainly rubbed off in a huge way. So it's just a lot of bigger picture moments. Yeah. That, no, that's incredible. That's really cool. Do you think like those moments from your childhood have shaped kind of who you are and not just like what you do? I do. I, I don't think that everything was perfect in my childhood. I, I come from a divorced family. There are certainly wounds. But I think that I took the best of it all and moved forward in what I wanted to make my life be. And I've done a tremendous amount of work over the years looking at the wounds and the things that were not great and working to integrate those and make peace with those. So I don't, I'm in a really good place in my life right now because I don't really have to visit those in a way that's painful anymore. 
word that's a work that's work that has to be done for sure yeah i'm happy to be in a place where i can look at things and say they are the way they are they are as they are and let's just keep going that's awesome that emphasis like on on the real world that we're in now if you were to live in any fictional universe which would it be and why well, you know, I would live in the Harry Potter. <laughs> we do know of that. Course, of and course, that is why we asked this question. <laughs> I think that my fascination with Harry Potter is partially rooted in my own imagination, yes, but also my spirituality. Because I, I have come to realize that the secret for me to life, living life, and spirituality is to walk within that which is sacred and secular simultaneously. Mm. Right. And I've had experiences in my life where through meditation, through spiritual work, I could be walking in a hike in the woods here in the mountains, say, and find myself at the same time trotting uh, land that I have I have explored in other countries that was so magnetically energetic and important to me that I was able to infuse both places at the same time within my own meditative walk and to be able to experience both of them at the same time. And so I think the magic of life is being able to find the otherworldliness, the spirit, the divine ringing through in the mundane. Yeah, mm-hmm, absolutely. And that this, the trick is being able to experience, have both, appreciate both. And so with the world of Harry Potter, you have these two extremes that are divided, right? Mm-hmm. You have the muggle world, which is the mundane. You have the Dursleys, which is your standard American family. If I were to look at the American families just down the streets, living their lives, they're very much like the Dursleys. In almost every single way. Uh, And then you have this wizard world, right? Where everything is magic. And so this this story where the two seem to be at war with each other, where one has to hide from the other, I think is very telling of our human experience today. Um, This need to control religion, to control spirituality for fear of maybe not understanding it or some fear of it being proven incorrect creates the the Dursley approach. Mm-hmm. And then the wild, I can do what I want at my will, I'm unhinged and there's nothing to be accountable to that you do see in some of the parts of the wizarding world are the other extreme. Interesting. For me, it always goes back to Harry Potter, the character. I think I identify with him more than maybe any other character I've read in literature. And it's not because we have the same life experience. But I just feel very deeply connected to him and his path. And he sort of, you know, he goes on the hero's journey. We, we all are tied to myth in all of our religions and our stories are so similarly connected with myth and he's that hero's journey. And so you see him sacrifice himself. You see him lose, you see him win, you see him grow, you see him alone. You see all of those challenges in him, but you also see that the oldest form of magic is always following him and it's love. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so it always comes down to that. It starts that way with the first book because love protects him from Voldemort. Mm-hmm. The first time uh, when he's a, t- a toddler and Voldemort's trying to kill him. And then again, and even in the first book, when he meets him in uh, in pursuit of the Philosopher's Stone. What was it like for you to read Harry Potter for the first time? Um, again, I, I'd heard about it, and I thought it was a children's book. And I actually, my dad is a retired minister, and I think it was the... 20th anniversary of his, uh, I don't know what you call it, coronation, consecration, induction, you're, you're a pastor now moment. And there was this big party for him the family was throwing, and I remembered reading about Harry Potter. And I, my dad had always sort of equated himself a little bit as a boy to Dennis the Menace. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, he was sort of the black sheep a little bit in his family, which he's proud of now. So I was reading a little bit about who Harry Potter was, what the world of Harry Potter was like, the synopsis of the first book. And I thought, even though I haven't really read this, I think my dad would like it. And it reminded me of at least some of the ways he had described himself. And so I remember just buying him that book. And so it wasn't maybe a year after that or so that I was like, yeah, maybe I should read this book. And I just picked it up and read it. And I just found myself not being able to stop turning the pages and loving the world. And by the time I think I read the first book, probably the first three were out, I'm thinking. So I was able to kind of go along. And I think I remember having to wait on book four. And then book five, and then the most painful thing was waiting for six. And then I remember throwing my book across the yard, screaming in anger when I got to a certain part near the end of book six. No, no, no! (laughs) 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 Oh my gosh. I think we've all had that experience with like some literature, like... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, my sister had read all of Harry Potter, like like the first three books before I even like could read. Um, so I read them like back to back up up to the sixth. But while I was waiting for the seventh book to read it because my sister was still reading it, she convinced me that Ron died. And <laughs> I, as Ron was one of my favorite characters, I was convinced. And I was devastated. And when I read the book, I was furious <laughs> because like it was not what had happened and I had already grieved this character only to find I had to grieve so many more yes, <laughs> yeah. the worst feeling she definitely took um took out that book and made it very adult and yeah, it, oh, yeah it grows with you as you mm-hmm. go I remember seeing the first Harry Potter movie I was at school of the arts again my first especially my first year I was very much by myself I didn't know anybody. I had like given up my whole adult life, moved to Winston-Salem, and I was very much there to do the work. I wasn't there to make go to go to college again, you know. I was there to learn something very specific I desired to learn. So I was always I was always doing homework or in a practice room. And so when I did have time, I just hung out with my dog. And so I remember 
I didn't watch much TV. The only thing I watched was when I was doing my homework sometimes late, I would have the Golden Girls on. Love the Golden Girls. <laughs> Which was funny because the, the doorbell ring would ring in the commercials because Domino's had this thing running in the commercials during that time. So it's like the doorbell rings at Domino's and someone always comes to see the Golden Girls. So the doorbell's ringing and my dog, Lily, hated doorbells. So every night from like 11 to 12, thank God the neighbors didn't hate me, but she would, it was like a bark fest. Anyway, um, I was alone a lot. I didn't get to watch much TV. I missed a lot of stuff. And I remember it was right around the holiday break and the, the Harry Potter movie came out and I remember going to see it by myself. Wow. And maybe being one of just a few people in the theater. And I, I, I think maybe being in a Gen Xer too, that the ability to do things by yourself, mm -hmm. to be alone, uh, is something that you learned growing up. And so there's these moments in my life where I can see solitude and myself being perfectly entertained with my own company. But there's is a slight I won't call it loneliness, but there there might be a hint of that in that as well. Yeah. But I, I think it is important to be able to do that. Yeah. To be able to like have that time by yourself and be comfortable being alone. To find companionship in yourself is, mm -hmm. is really I, I know it's something that people my age who like I didn't really grow up with access to social media at all. Same. Um and so it wasn't until I was in high school that I was like, "Oh my god, my friends have access to people all the time." Mm -hmm. Um and I like g gained that access and it kind of overwhelmed me. Um and even now like sometimes I'll just kind of like get have to get off of things cuz I don't really want that much. Yeah. Access. I, I didn't get like an iPhone until mm -hmm. I was like 14 or 15, so yeah. like in high school. Had those flip phones. And oh yeah, <laughs> for sure. But, like, that's something I'm really thankful for now. Yeah. Just being able to look back and realize, like, my whole childhood was basically spent, like, outside. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, with friends, like, in person. Yeah. And I wasn't, like, always on my phone. So now I don't even, like, spend that much time on social media. Yeah. Because it's just, I don't mm -hmm. see it that way. Mm -hmm. And I can have that time alone, which is really yeah. nice. How, how has your ability to, been, to, like, be alone affected your companionship with your dogs? Well, I mean... <laughs> I know it's a weird question. I mostly just want to hear about Lily. About Lily? Well, li li you're not alone when you're with your dog. Yeah, yeah. I mean, al I mean, alone from people. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> I, I mean, I prefer the company of animals over people. Um, I have a small group of people that I definitely enjoy being around. I'm very much a 50-50 split almost. I'm like a 55 45 split between extroverted and introvert and there's a word for me and i forgot what it is i learned it recently it's ambivert ambivert i yeah. am the same okay, thing so evidently i'm an ambivert <laughs> <laughs> just for our listeners knowledge Kristen, dakota and i all have all the same personality types but mm -hmm. we're with different levels of extroversion and introversion yep so we're like a little coalition of the same <laughs> myers-briggs same enneagram type four <laughs> It's really funny to me. Well, Lily Lily was my daughter. She was the greatest tragic loss and also gain or gift of my life. Um, never get over losing her. Um, but that's what you sign up for when you agree to uh, have dogs as your children. They have a different lifespan and you have to, you know, acknowledge that. Lily, 
Lily and I had a lot of things we did together. First of all, we had a lot of songs that we sang together um, that we made up. And our activities would include sharing a bag of popcorn on the couch. She had this ability to put her nose in the bag and pull one piece out and eat it. And then she would wait for me to put my hand in and get some pieces. But we did this great trade off. We liked, She had this place uh, when I was in Winston-Salem down in a park that we called the Jump Along. And it was a, a path. And it had there was this one place where it was like an old creek that wasn't a creek anymore. And there were... It was just sort of a dip with some branches and I would get her to start running really fast and chase me and then she would do this huge jump, you know, across it. And that was the jump along. And there was a synagogue just behind it. And we would sit at in the backyard of the synagogue on the top of the hill. And it was a nice steep hill. And she would roll down the hill and sometimes she would shimmy on her back, like head first. <laughs> and so after she did that a few times, I started doing it with her. So we had these like things we would we would really roll and shimmy down the hill. She went everywhere with me, every single place she had to, because I I was just me and it was her, and so we we were a we were a package deal. She was just my everything, and we could go places together. I used to like, when I lived in Asheville, I had a membership at the Arboretum, and we would go there sometimes on Saturdays when I would have a day off, and we would just stay there for five, six, seven hours, and I would just put out a blanket and bring food, and we would just sit there in the sun together and just be, and then we would go hike around the trails, and then we'd come back and just be lily was um very strong-minded and she did prefer to train the cats in our house how to how they should behave she had a belief that rubbing bellies could change the world i actually wrote a children's book about that a few years ago you can actually check that out it's called big lily's rent a belly i did not know this oh my god i will immediately find this get it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Um, and anyway, she, she also believed in water conservation, um, projects because rather than waste sink water for, you know, like rinsing dishes before they go into the dishwasher, she would pre-wash them by herself with her own saliva. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. So she really, really did believe in conserving water through the use of her tongue and she also believed that squirrels were very problematic and that they should have zones in our neighborhoods and that if they would stay in their zone that we would not have problems (laughs) please remain in your zone valid totally valid and we always had a christmas song that we sang every year together and it was based on old country gospel Christmas song, I don't know if you've heard, called The Beautiful Star of Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. we, we we wrote together Beautiful Dogs of Bethlehem. <laughs> and uh, there were beautiful dogs in Bethlehem on the night that Jesus was born. And there were camels and there were some humans too. 
(laughs) (laughs) They were giving their bark to show the way over to where little Jesus lay. So beautiful dogs in Bethlehem bark on. Oh, that that's is a true delight. God, that is magnificent. I love that. I, I have, I've loved over the few years I've known you hearing little snippets about mm-hmm. this wonderful, magical dog. Absolutely. She sounds incredible. Yeah. She was a bit of a goat. She she did eat glass. She electrocuted herself. <laughs> she <laughs> ate a wall. She ate carpet. Um, you know, she was, she had a broad palate, really. Wow. My dog is very small, but he has made a great effort to follow the those those footsteps by eating mm-hmm. paint and chocolate and <laughs> my favorite shoes. Anything he can anything he anything can, can get, manage. You know, into his mouth. <laughs> Today, Kristen, my you've you've seen my dog. You are aware of his size. He picked up a full size tennis ball and was like, We're gonna play fetch with this. And I was like, that's the size oh, of your head, funny. dude. It's bigger than <laughs> his head. Yeah. He's like, ah <laughs> I'm just gonna like play happened. with this now. He's like the bumblebee, really. Oh, yeah. Yes. He doesn't know he shouldn't be able to do that, so he does it anyway. <laughs> you are scientifically impossible, and but here we go. Yet there you are. Yeah. <laughs> Kristen, uh, yes. 20 years ago, where did you think you would be right now? 20 years ago. I didn't know, to be honest. I never had one of those plans that said, I have to go here by this date and this date. When I was handed assignments like that, which, you know, happens every now and then, I kind of just thought, well, this is bullshit. Let me fill it out. I I did know at that point that I was interested in pursuing classical studies in music because I was out of school working and I had started studying with a classical teacher for the first time. And so I will say that if I look back at that exact year, I was in a place of saying, I don't know what's next. This is not enough. I was going back and forth between, did I want to go to school for creative writing or did I want to go to school for music, back to school and learn opera and classical sounds? So in that particular random year, exactly 20 years ago, I would have been applying for going back to school. Again, I didn't... At some point, I knew the answer once I got into school, but that year, I wasn't sure which way it was going to go. That was the first year of my life, I believe, that I was making all of my money in the arts, where I did not have... I had a lot of different jobs I was piecing together, but they were all within the arts format, um, and I was not having to do a Joe job or Jane job. So I do remember being satisfied with that part but there there was something missing in my education that in my path to to my fullest artist that was incomplete because I had discovered something else so that's that's all I knew at the time is that I wasn't going to stay where I was uh, and that I was going to go in one of those directions yeah that's really encouraging <laughs> honestly if, I, if I'm being honest because like I know ideas of like what I want for the future Mm -hmm. and like things I totally could do but it's just like right now I I could never tell you like 20 years from now or even 10 honestly like I've got ideas and I know Mm -hmm. things I want but that's enough that as long as you have that ambition and drive like Mm -hmm. finding where you fit is can sometimes be really difficult but taking the time to let it unfold is important absolutely Um, Absolutely. you you talked a little bit uh, in each kind of question about 
spirituality and like Druidism, mm-hmm. do you prescribe to a specific spirituality or religion? And how would you explain that to people who don't know anything about it? Okay. Well, I'll first talk to you just, I think you probably got hints of this before, but I grew up in a, in a Christian home. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad, one of my grandfathers and one of my aunts, all pastors in Protestant churches, Baptists mostly. And then lots of, lots of aunts, especially who are also directors of music, including my mother in the church. So church, 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 church. In fact, until I was 11 or 12, we did not live in a house that we owned. We always lived in the parsonage of the church. Wow. That we were in residence at, if you want to call it. So uh, for me, again, there's this part of church that was part of that outdoor magic I talked about when I was younger. Me and my best friend, her name was Jonna, and she was just the most wonderful best friend to have as a little girl. And we did everything together. Well, we sort of, in addition to her having a swimming pool and they had a golf cart, they had a go-kart, they had all these cool trees you could climb. Her grandmother like made all these amazing food, including fresh boiled peanuts, which is still one of my favorite things to eat today. But then if you take the church and you put it beside her house, the church was just an extension of the outdoors. So my dad would be not on church days where there'd be ceremony going on, but all the other days of the week, the church would be unlocked because my dad would be in his office. And so we would just go in there and do whatever we wanted. We were awful, but we went, we'd go in every single classroom. We would use all the craft materials. We would draw, we would go into this attic that had this, it was this very empty attic with a con, seemed like concrete floor. It was just huge. And we would roller skate up there um we would drive the golf carts and the go-karts around the circle where you drop elderly people off or people who can't move you know the carport uh we would just it was just we would run all over the graveyard so when i when i would stare out the window from my room in my house every night i just saw great you know the graveyard and there was this one that glowed but um we just it was like a playground so I didn't feel a disconnect from that until I was a, probably a teenager, early teenager. That's when the dogma and the rules for living start getting imposed on you. And then everything that was natural to you about the divine all of a sudden becomes at war with your own instincts. And so I, I struggled with that, mo- I think, like most young people do for a very long time. Yet... um. It didn't stop me from becoming the person I was going to become and having the experiences I was going to have. Somehow, like, she broke through, regardless. That didn't mean there wasn't a lot of trauma and guilt and wrestling and worrying, but it still all happened regardless. Like, she, the me, she broke through. I followed a a very, a path of expanding from the limited theology I grew up with, the biblical literalism, um, the shame tactics, all of that, and eventually became an Episcopalian and was that for a, a fair amount of my adult, some of my adult years, because I found that I found, first of all, I love ritual and I found the most beautiful ritual I could find within Christianity in the, the rites of the Episcopal church 
also the beauties of the buildings and the, the level of musicianship that you find in churches like that. Um, one of my best friends is an organist, so being able to go into those churches and hear somebody just bust out some Bach is pretty awesome. So, but eventually that I'll just, I'll say, I, I have a book about this as well. My entire spiritual experience with Christianity. I wrote a memoir about eight years ago about that. What? What? <laughs> you can also get that on Amazon or Absolutely. What, what is it right, called? Well, Cause yeah, I've so, never. Give us the name. Cause we read it not immediately. Okay. It's called God is not a bully, a not so churchy memoir. This sounds delightful. That's so good. Uh, everyone, please check this out. We Absolutely. will be checking it out soon. You know, if you don't want to read about all my crap, you, there, there is a, there's a poem at the end of each chapter. I'm a poet, so even if you don't want to read all my crap, you, know, you can enjoy the poetry. I think. Of course. Absolutely. This sounds wonderful. We are getting this book. Uh, okay, so it wasn't enough. There was uh, a lot of. There was a lot of remembering when the church sort of broke my heart in that. I wanted it to be something that it couldn't be and eventually found myself pushed away from it and then realized that the clue was sort of always there is that my own theology was probably too broad and to that growing up in the church again that practical side of being a preacher's kid is you see the church quote family as someone who's taking your family Oh, uh, wow. Oh, that's a really interesting framework. If I look at my dad's own journey as a pastor, I saw him when he got close to his retirement years. I just saw the same old patterns play out. It's people take, 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 take. Mm -hmm. um, the pastor can never truly find a group of friends who care about them because the people need them to be the, quote, shepherd and they want to be the sheep, and they want you to be there for every single thing that's important to them, and they don't care if it's at the cost of you missing out on the same things. Yeah. So if it's the birth of a child, it's the someone getting put into a hospital, someone dying, it's an anniversary, it's just someone who's shut in and can't get out. It's all these things that are expected on top of just the the normals of running a church that bring if you're a preacher's kid that take your dad or your mom out of your house or that make you come back early from vacations that you're on or say dad can't come to your show even though he had a ticket because someone died which is valid of course but um so you see the sacrifices I think after a time when you see just that human problem of it's just humans it's humans trying to create a structure in which to play out a, a belief system and a religion. Um, and so it's going to be flawed and you have to be forgiving of that. Um, but you also have to be smart about it when it perhaps is dangerous in some way. And I, I think that there are a lot of dangers in dogmatic religions that are not spoken about. And it's often the complacent person who just says, well, I'm nice, I don't hurt anyone, I smile, I'm polite, but I secretly have a bias and hate you and you and judge you, you, you. I'm just not going to say it because, you know, I'm such a nice person. And I think that there's inherent harm in a collective group of people behaving that way. But that's, that's, so what, where do I end up? I end up after leaving the church working with a shaman for a while who is, trained in Peruvian practice 
and getting some solace, connecting my own Christianity to a greater, uh, more primal indigenous, perhaps, connection. And then that, that took me to Druidry, which I've been in for three years now, officially, in the order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids, and I'm in the there's three stages or three types of expressing druidry, which is the bards, which are the the truth tellers through poetry, through music, through storytelling. There are the ovates, which are the healers, and the and then the druids, which are the the wise minds, the keepers, the sages. When I first heard about Celtic connection to spirituality. I was still in the Christian church. I was an Episcopalian. I had gone on a trip to Ireland with my best friend, and that's when I discovered a tangible connection, an energetic, tangible connection to something divine that I couldn't quite name to the point that I was like, I've been here before. I've said words here before. I've walked here before. And it was just in recent years as the DNA information that I do have about myself has gotten updated that I've realized I actually have ancestors from many of those counties I visited. So, um, but it was this idea that again, which made sense to me as a child with Celtic spirituality was that it went hand in hand with the everyday. Mm -hmm. Fast forward many years to three years ago. And, um, I started reading about Druidry and it was basically like everything I had done with my shaman mentor and everything I loved that I wanted to take from Christianity all of a sudden met me right back into that mud pie field, that sunflower garden. And I was like, yes, this has always been who I was. I just found somebody who could frame it for me and a way that I could practice it. So with Druidry, the, the, short, the short way of saying it is it is a way to reconnect our spirit by communing with nature. It's like re-entering the Garden of Eden because when in that myth, when we left the Garden of Eden, we left our connection to our earth and to nature. And, and that is, I think, where some of the biggest disconnects are in the world. That is why we're killing our planet. That is why we can't have conversations with each other. That's why we have pandemics, because we treat animals the way we treat them. But it doesn't say, go off in the woods and hide. Druidry says, engage in the world. Be a part of the world reconnect and commune with nature through the the elements through the continuum of time and in all of it try and bring peace to the world and the work though is often very solo the the work is very personal the work is learning to acknowledge all parts of yourselves to connect with your ancestors the four elements and to live the wheel of the year through the seasons in an acknowledgement of the span of life in the continuum of life it just has helped me put every single piece of me together spiritually uh that i've ever loved or and or discarded and to bring it all in 
the thing about Druidry is it's not a religion. Um, you can be, there are Buddhist Druids, there are Christian Druids, there are Atheist Druids, there are Secular Druids, there are, I mean, just, there are um, Pagan Druids, there are, it's it just, so it's, a, again, it's a life path, it's a way of exploring life. And the thing that I think makes it different than some religions that may find similarities in it is that it embraces the senses. It does not ask you to in any way shut one out or use some kind of strategy to suppress or what they might call in some religions temptation or or denying the worldly whatever. You find your way to the divine through the senses. And that's the key to experiencing the spirits of the other world. Just like letting whatever happens naturally from you, like happen, I guess. And there's just a lot of work. It's a lot of yeah, self for sure. Work and then integration. That's really cool. That's incredible. That's really cool. I, I've also, I never like heard of that kind of like layered on top of Christianity. Because I, I feel a lot of those things that you've just mentioned. And I've never like really made those connections. That's a really cool thing to hear about. Yeah. I like it too because I I don't know if you're familiar with Joseph Campbell and the power of myth but he was sort of this maybe the best scholar of our time he he died in the late 80s his books and his he was a professor but his books and all of his talks about the power of myth he basically says that we experience the divine through myth yeah and and so he he has he gone has through gone and through talked about, about every single myth there is in every single culture and it's just it's fascinating, fascinating to, see to see how people, how people experience, experience the, divine the divine and that there, that there is a commonality. is a commonality yeah in every religion or life path through the stories how similar the stories are in one of the main stories in druidry that is important it's a welsh story it's about uh, Taliesin and a goddess named Caridwen and it's sort of a long story but there are similarities with the Moses story mm -hmm. at the end of it at least there's a lot it's all about achieving the Awan which is spiritual creativity it's the greatest wisdom and to find it you have to have a childlike innocence and so this goddess is sort of not winning in a way <laughs> when this young boy accidentally tastes the awen he's not supposed to um he's tending a fire that's brewing it and accidentally splashes on him and then she pursues him because it was meant to be for someone else and there's a lot of shape shifting involved and a lot of tr okay you turned into this animal now i'm going to turn into its predator <laughs> eventually yeah. this poor boy he hides and turns himself into a grain so she turns herself into a hen and she eats him whoa and eventually she becomes pregnant with him and when she he's born out of her maternal love for him she cannot kill him so she puts him in a little bag, a little <laughs> bag and she sends him down the water the river just like moses and then when he gets to the other end and he is found, he says, I am the radiant brow, I am Taliesin, which means radiant brow. And he's very much a Moses type in that with his words, because he's considered the greatest bard of all time, with his own words, he can win wars. He can change 
p groups of people he can lead. So there's so many amazing stories and similarities. I, I have that book upstairs and it's it's really like the way that it's broken up into like like a type of myth and then all the myths from different cultures that fit into that type of myth. Um, and I was so fascinated to read about like creative myths involving women because I grew up in the Christian tradition and you didn't hear about women ever. Like, yeah. really. And, and then when I grew up and started, like, reading the Bible, I was like, wow, there's these amazing, powerful, creative women in the Bible that aren't spoken about. Um, and then finding how many more goddesses and creative traditions and, um, like, the triple goddess, like, all exist in these other traditions that we just don't dabble in that much. It's, it's a really cool creative power. It, yeah, and, and very much with, with Druidry, it is about the goddess. Yes. Just, it's about balancing the masculine and the feminine, but it also acknowledges that our world is very much gotten away from the feminine. Yeah. Uh, it needs a, to balance itself with the masculine linear, the sword, versus the organic, circular, the cauldron, which eventually became the phallus and the womb. There's a, ma a million different... Or, or became the uh, sword or the grail, the chalice. But you can look through time and see how they evolve and how they, ch they change, but they all come from the same uh, sentiment. There's that the duality sword. in like everything, oh, yeah. absolutely yeah. everything. Um, so you, you like talked a little bit about like how we exist in, in life and like our life force and such, mm -hmm. but uh, what do you think happens when we die? Uh, Cody and I've had this, Yes, we have. Yeah. I, well, I'm just going to say right out, I don't know. We don't know. Because we haven't died or we don't remember it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if we have died before, we don't remember it. Just like I don't remember being born. I can tell you based on just my own experience, probably mixed with stories I've heard and my own imagination, what I I might imagine happens. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a moment of awareness of our lives lived for us to take stock of it. That there was, if if there are more lives to live, possibly that there was a, a, a something learned, and so there's a moment after the death of the body where the soul looks back and can see the life lived and can take stock of it. And again, just like we do with our lives right now, learn to integrate the points. And then maybe there's a moment of, well, there's an, a point after that, I think, where we can let go of the ego once those things are known and go back to our greatest self. And then perhaps there's a decision that gets to be made. Am I wanting to go and become part of the ultimate source mm -hmm. uh, and to be a part of that? And that's where I want to to finish up or to to go back to home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To be a part of the bigger piece. Mm -hmm. Or do I possibly want to experience life again? I don't know, but I sometimes wonder, have I been a bird? Have I been a cow or a dog or possibly a tree? Or I have I been a human being, but from a different time and a different culture? 
Right. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the, that's best, the I best I can say, say is, that is that we don't, we don't really, really know. know. I do I believe there this, this that death that is death definitely is a transition, transition, a rite of passage, passage to a new right. realm, to a new place. To a new place. And I do yeah. think I do that there think is that something, there something circular, circular about, it. about it. Yeah, for sure. I don't think it's like the end, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like another step. I guess you talked about it a little bit in the last question, but what do you think at least for you, what what is the meaning of life? Well, I'll start with, so in one of my meditations that I do have done regularly with in my druid work, I meet this very old goddess and she's sort of this, she's very old. She might be the oldest in the world or of time, all time. She's sort of been this deep mentor, like the, this old grandmother that you always wanted who would just, tell you what you needed to hear and there were a couple of times along the way in the last couple years where she looked at me and she said I sometimes I see you living and sometimes I see you dying and so my work was to go and look at the places in my life where I am more in a path of dying than living and to sort of evaluate those things and to make choices that allow me to be living because that's the point to to live and to experience i think if i were to go more philosophical with that i would say okay so there's this awareness or duality of getting to know yourself and doing that work deeply over time but while doing that very specific work which gets you to know yourself on the deepest level, you become less selfish right? by spending all that time on yourself. And then you see yourself as less important in the ways you first sought yourself out to be Yeah, mm-hmm. when you were trying to understand yourself. And so there's this spectrum that we travel to know both how these things are the same while we're separated from the greater field from which we come from. So when we're in this dual state of realizing our extreme personal identity and the fact that that makes us not as important in an egotistical way as we may have searched for, but actually part of a larger theme, I think when that duality is in sync, we're at our best. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that when we are channeling the life force in that, that light, that that's when love is possible. Yeah. That's really fascinating. I, that, that's the kind of love that is beyond definition or beyond human experience. So I think it's about coming to an awareness of that. And as we go through that, trying to find a way to experience joy for just being alive and I have had that experience a couple of times in my life. I, I remember when my husband and I went to Scotland a few years ago. And one of the places I'd always wanted to go is the island of Iona. Mm-hmm. And we were extremely tired. We'd been walking, probably walked 10 miles, uh, hiking miles that day. And I was determined to find this place on the coast of the one end of the island called St. Columba's Bay. And it was not a marked trail. It was like, follow these, 
hills and see if you can find like a line in the grass where some sheep have walked you know and then if you see a lock on your right walk around it and then you know use very we were really we were really happy we found it (laughs) uh and i remember getting there and being so excited and seeing it the view the energy and walking out past the pebble beach onto these giant rocks that went out over the sea and I remember in my exhaustion, I stood on that rock and I just experienced the joy of existing. There was nothing else about it. It wasn't the satisfaction of having found it. We were past that moment. It just was putting my feet there, standing there. And there was this moment I experienced where it was just enough to be alive. Mm. God. That's incredible. That's a really amazing moment. Yeah, absolutely. I think when you have those moments, even though they might be, they might not recur often, when you have them, you remember them. Yeah. Yeah. I have one when I was like 12 or 13 and I was at the beach with my family and we went out to see the beach. And when we got there, the tide was so high that it met the entrance and there was a full moon. And I felt like I was standing on top of the entire sea. Like there was no ground. It was just like in the ocean. And it was like like a memory that I will never forget of just so much peace that I just felt completely one with the world around me. And like I I've have little moments like that yeah. throughout my life, but like letting go of all the stress and the anxiety to find those moments can be so difficult. For sure. It, there's been a few moments like that for mm-hmm. me, but all of them have involved nature, being mm-hmm. out in the world, being around something just bigger than yourself. Yeah. But being able to be a part of that. The first time visiting the Blue Ridge Parkway up here. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I just stood out on the edge and I was like, this. You feel so so small, but also so... It's why I like stargazing so much. Yeah, yeah. Because you don't need anything else. Mm. It's just like, you can be a part of it all. Yeah, to exist in the world as a part of it, not just an observer of it. Or like the, like it's something you can gain from. Right. You're just there with it is really nice. Well, Chris, I think we're about... At our uh, time, so I will ask my all-time favorite question of what is the best advice you've ever received? The best advice. Okay, well, certainly it's not one sentence. It's a a group of things. For sure. I think this was maybe not said in specific words, but it was just a part of my relationship with my mom. Just trust your instincts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've never, ever, ever been wrong i make instinctive judgments and decisions all the time i've gotten more comfortable making them because they don't they i just they're always the right ones so the few times in my life where i've said no maybe think about it this way i've always come back to that so yeah i think in situations where there's like there's strife, there's obstacles or anxiety around something that you don't have the complete control over resolving. I always go to back to a moment with my dad when I was in a similar situation like that. And he just said, everything will come out in the wash. <laughs> oh, my husband, there's a couple of things. Um, when it comes to that moment where you want to do something that you think you can do, but maybe you're afraid you want to have the courage or somebody else is telling you don't or try and pull you back. In those moments, we're on that precipice of do. He would say, 
in all of the things that I present, he would just look at me and say, attack it like a warrior. Uh, the thing that I would tell myself before walking into the moment that I'm nervous about, and it always works. He would also say, if it's not a hell yeah, then it's not worth your time. That's a good that's one. Gr- that's great. That's <laughs> yeah. a good one. That is a good way to make decisions about who you spend your time with and what you spend your time doing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest influence from um, a celebrity or someone I've never met would be Judy Garland, who always said, always be a first-rate version of yourself rather than a second-rate version of someone else. Agreed. Yes. I love that quote. Absolutely. Lily, it would be, you know, L-O-V-E to you from me. That's so good. (laughs) And then um, Dumbledore would be my last one. When he said, you know, of course it's happening in your head, Harry. (laughs) Uh, But why should that mean that it's not real? Mm. That's really cool. What a great compilation of advice. Right? No, literally. (laughs) That's wonderful. Wow. Um, Kristen, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story and your light with all of us. Mm -hmm. This has been marvelous. Where where can people find you? Yeah. Your books and your musicals and all of your things. Well, you can just go to kristenhedberg.com and everything's there. If you want to read about the musical Ghost of Christmas Past, you can click on that. If you want to read about the things I've written book-wise, you can click, there's a page there. You can learn about me as a performer. Um, yeah, so I think that's the, the the sole place to go. I'm not on social media, so if you are interested in contacting me, there's a contact form on the website you can use. Right. Awesome. Uh, Ghost of Christmas Past is a lovely Christmas musical that'll be up until November 5th, I believe. Um, January 4th. January 4th. I don't know what month it is, um, but I got the the number almost right. Oh January 5th. 4th. Cool. 5th. 4th. January 4th. 4th. You should go listen to it on Christmas. <laughs> um, and I will do the same. Um, and we're going to read all of Kristen's lovely books. And uh, this has been a wonderful yeah, time. Yeah, this has thank been fantastic. So much, thank you. Thank you so thanks, much. Thanks, guys. Yeah. I had a great time. And thanks for having me on. Of course. Absolutely. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next time. Uh, Yeah. Go drink some coffee, I guess.